Sonic Statesman.com. Hello and welcome to Sonic Talk number 75. It feels like a milestone. 75, what, three quarters of a century? That kind of thing. You know, feels. I'm feeling kind of mature and I think we've matured. And uh, maturing with me this week, uh, I'll start in the studio because uh, I'm very pleased to welcome Mr. Richard Evans, who's managed to take time out from his busy schedule. Hello, everybody. Uh, thank you very much for the uh, Peter Gabriel tour podcast, by the way. It was enjoyed by many. That felt like about a decade ago now. Yeah, it's, it flies, doesn't it? But uh, I'm glad you've managed to, to, to squeeze us in. So it's always nice to have visitors in the studio because uh, it means I have to put my clothes on, you know, tidy up a bit, that sort of thing. <laughs> and uh, um, we've also got a new addition to the team um, for this week, um, Mr. Chris McLeod, who is also from G4 Software. Um, Chris has come in because he's got some particular um, experience of our first topic. So I will uh, say hello to Mr. Chris McLeod. How are you? Good, thanks. Hi, everybody. Hello. Um, and um, we will also say hello to uh, Mr. PJ Tracy from Minneapolis. Good morning. How are you? How's the weather? The weather is frigid. Frigid, frigid as is the norm in February, yeah. Y- uh, I didn't check the temperature this morning, but I'm guessing it's probably about negative 10 Fahrenheit. Ooh, that's, it was pretty cold this morning, but it's brightened up a bit today for those who are interested in those things. But it's a bit, let's just get on with it, eh, shall we? Anyway, good to have you aboard, PJ. And uh, let's move on to Non Eric from Berlin. How are you? I'm fine, and I'm really, really happy that Chris is with us today because I'm hoping for a little bit of John Anderson stories today. <laughs> You'll, you'll certainly get one. For those of you who don't know, we, the the famed tequila night out at Nam involved uh, Chris, uh, non Eric, Dave, myself, and Andy Max. So we've got almost everybody here from the uh, from that night, and there were some John Anderson stories, uh, uh, some of which involved our first topic. But I won't uh, I won't jump the gun. Let's say hello first to Mr. Dave Spears from G4 Software, G4 Software dot com. Hello, hello. How are you doing? I'm all right. Frigid is a good adjective. I quite like that. Yeah, we'll go with that. Uh, <laughs> and uh, let's go on to our last guest, uh, Mr. Richard Hilton from Sunny Connecticut. Uh, Rich, of course, works a lot with Mr. Nile Rogers and is in the Chic Band. How are you, Rich? Very well, thank you. Good morning, everybody. Uh, did you play at uh, Sona last I year did. or two years ago? Yeah, I saw I you did. there. I was in the first line. Really? <laughs> Yes, and I did a video, and uh, that's what was actually also online on Musatalk.de, where I filmed the performance. Oh my goodness, how nice! I'd like to have to <laughs> don't that call out. the lawyers, Rich. Back off. Ah, uh, no, I'm thrilled to hear that. I'd love to see it. Let's quickly. First of all, uh, it was Grammys Award this week. There was, uh, and uh, obviously the the big news is Miss Amy Winehouse getting five Grammys, which I believe is a first, uh, not since the Beatles as such British. Um, awardness being bestowed on a British pop artiste. So congratulations to her. And Mr. Dave Spears, obviously you're, you have connections there because your brother-in-law is MD of the band. Is that right? Yep. Yep. And it's been party city ever since. <laughs> Not for her, I hasten to add, but for the band. No, she was looking good. And uh, everybody, you know, in the, the, I mean, she was up at four doing that uh, live link and she looked really much better than she has for a long time. So I hope she's, she's doing okay. That's great, great news. Yeah, I think it's all looking good. They actually lost sight of how many Grammys um, they'd won at a certain point. I think uh, my brother-in-law went off to the toilet, and when he came back, they were sort of arguing, is it four, is it five? Oh, no, hang on, it's six. Did they get six or five? They got oh, five, didn't five. they? They yeah, did yeah, got yeah. five. Nominated in six. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, congratulations to her and uh, I'm I'm glad you're feeling the love at your end of uh, end of town as well. Any other surprises there? I don't really follow them. I suppose I should have if I'd been really on the ball, I should have kind of made a list and we could have discussed it fully and everything. But anybody see any, was there any surprises or anything there that maybe thought anybody thought great, I'm really glad they got one. Yeah, the album yeah. of the year was given to a guy who's been in the business for 50 years. Shouldn't that have Nearly. been a lifetime achievement, Grammy? Well, no. he, happened, he happened to have made the album of the year. Oh, well, fair enough. Well, has anybody <laughs> heard it? Herbie Hancock. Oh, the Joni Lepers or whatever. Yeah, Joni Mitchell tribute thing. Produced with her, fondly with her ex-husband, apparently. Did you guys see the, uh, the great Lemur performance that Daft Punk put up? No? Oh, Kanye uh, West. With Kanye West, what? They had a jazz mutant Lemur on stage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Woo! Big up to the Jazz Mutant crew. That's the equivalent of being on the Super Bowl, isn't it, for sort of music technology? Absolutely, I think so. And, and was it used to great effect, or do you think it, they were miming with it? I think it was miming. I put a, a, a link to the YouTube video on my site. Ah, which I, of course, forgot to plug. Um, Hans, oh, uh, not yeah. Eric, musotalk.de for all your German uh, podcast dietary needs. <laughs> Thanks, Nick. You're welcome. Sonicstate.com Dave Spears sent me this, uh, and this was a video I got that um, was on YouTube, and it's called The Hotbox. Now, I'm just going to play a little introduction. It's about a minute, so bear with me, but I think it might explain a little bit of what's going on. So here we go. This instrument is uh, literally a dream come true for me because it, it opens up... Uh, the door to be creative. The years of sitting in the back of the studio with Fleetwood Mac, having ideas but not being able to project them on an instrument, on this, I, I'll be able to do it. The Atari Corporation took on the HUD's keyboard technology because it represents a totally new way for people to perform either by accompanying pre-recorded music or to create their own. Now, guitarists and drummers can find a more effective way to express themselves. But even more surprisingly, so can the average person with musical ideas, but little or no playing experience. Atari took an early stand in the field of MIDI, because Atari feels that everyone has the right to affordable technology. And the musicians have responded. With a load of kind of very dated 80s kind of stuff. But we'll gloss over that. Um, well, can you help us with a date on that? When, was, never, that, when was that made? That I video? don't know. I've never heard of it. It was a total revelation to me. Late 80s, I would say. Late 1989. 80s. 1989. I had the pleasure to meet the guy. He's weird, Mr. Hotz. I had the pleasure of spending two days in his house. You did? I did, yes. Well, Chris, I mean, perhaps I could ask you to chip in first, because um, perhaps, could you explain sort of what it is physically and, you know, just the general sort of what it is? Because, I mean, there's some pretty outrageous um, claims there. I mean, obviously, Atari are no longer with us. And that the first voice you heard there was uh, Mr. Um, uh, Mick Fleetwood, who was um, sort of wearing some kind of vest, which looked a bit dubious to play some drums and things. But, you know, it's all part of this sort of amazing translation system. But I don't really know much about it. Perhaps, Chris, if you could just give us an overview. I saw that uh, video of Mick Fleetwood, and he looked like either a suicide bomber or a coke transporter. <laughs> he looked like he was coming in from Columbia. <laughs> <laughs> But the, the actual kind of the actual surface itself and the whole Atari thing, what was that all about then? I didn't quite understand whether it was 
how it worked? The actual box itself, the uh, uh, the hot box, was a series of uh, uh, velocity-sensitive control pads split up into all sorts of different regions, and you could assign via the software, the translator software, um, various elements to each of the control regions. So you'd have scales in the top uh, section of the controller, and then you'd have chords assigned to the main keyboard area of the controller, and then uh, other MIDI expressive or exp- expression right. parameters assigned to the side parts. So it would require uh, quite a lot of programming setup to make any sense of it. I mean, it didn't just kind of come out of the box and sound wonderful. It was a nightmare. If anyone <laughs> has had the pleasure of uh, programming something like a Yamaha KX88 in hex, this was about 30 Yamaha KX88 Oh. nightmares it was just awful I, really got the, awful I got the impression that you know both mick fleetwood and also john anderson later on and various people that were using it were just going wow it's great and they didn't realize that some poor sod had actually had to kind of spend most of the last week kind of turning it into something useful and they just That's assumed the- that it was this wonderful instrument so you know mick would presumably have people who would kind of make it so and so would john and uh, and i guess were you would you describe yourself as one of those people that had to make it so I don't know about, yeah, I would describe myself as that, but I don't know about a wonderful person, many sleepless nights. And because I have a total inability to, uh, in music theory, it was a total pain in the ass. And, uh, I understood the concept and it really is quite brilliant, but you have to be somewhat of a musical genius to make sure that it's set up in the correct way. Yeah, was it when they demoed and explained it to me uh, at the time? Their idea was that you could, you know, hit any of the controls, and it would always be uh, in the right scale, and it would always work, so that somebody who had absolutely no clue about music could actually make music with it. Was that the the, the thought behind it? Yeah, genius, isn't it? The problem is that fundamentally somebody has to actually program the software for the structures that you have in a song. So with a Yes song, which is what I was going to use it for, I I had to understand at which sections of the song it was going to be used in uh, and what scale any given piece was in. Otherwise, it just wouldn't be in tune. So the claim that it's in tune at all times, it's always in tune with itself but it's not necessarily in tune with the rest of the song. <laughs> with anybody else. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, so that really involves that it really had to be programmed for each song individually, otherwise it wouldn't work. Totally. Correct? Totally. Okay. That's why the demos are so wonderful, because they're also set up individually. Yeah. And yes, you can play everything in real time, but Jimmy spent weeks and weeks and weeks programming it, and he was... The oddest person I think I've met in the music business. Just lovely guy, but totally hat stand and a, a real diode head. Rich, you were going to... Well, no, I just you said there was something really clever about it, but what's really clever about it? Because it looks just like a, 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 a MIDI keyboard without keys on it. Uh, it, is, it is that, but what you can do is assign... For someone like John Anderson, who doesn't actually play a musical instrument, or Mick Fleetwood who has uh, a range of ideas that he wants. But as a drummer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's the drummers there, yeah. Once you've assigned the scales that you want to play any given chord in, just by touching the top range of controllers, once you've um, selected the correct scale, 
all of the chords that were played on the keyboard section below the scale section would follow suit, so they'd all be... Uh, oh, I see, right. They transposed do- to the correct uh, part of the key range. The thing that got me is, you know, that it... it- it, there are these kind of quotes on the site, and one of the, this is a classic. I really like this one. I've seen three things in my life that I instantly knew would have a profound effect on the future. The personal computer, the mouse, and the hot translator. <laughs> Steve Wozniak, <laughs> co-founder of Apple Computers. Now, I, I mean, and uh, John Anderson also said, there is no question that this is the greatest musical instrument since the invention of the piano. John Anderson, leader of the music group, yes. Now, would you like a real-life story? Yes, please. Absolutely. Okay. Or real, oh, real, yeah. life ap- real life application. I was rehearsing with Yes uh, in Pensacola in Florida for a, an upcoming tour. Uh, and I'd met Jimmy out in California and spent a couple of days getting my head around the, the, the instrument itself. And I, I, I thought, oh, this is going to be a complete nightmare because John is just looking for new ways of triggering percussion. Why doesn't he just sit, stick to a bloody tambourine? which is pretty good. (laughs) And one day the tour manager came to me and said, oh, there's a great big box arrived for you, Chris. And I thought, oh, this would be something exciting, some new fangled keyboard. I couldn't wait. So I opened up a lovely bit of analog gear and out popped the hots box. And I just was filled with doom. John came into the dressing room and said, oh, I see you've got the hots box there. Lovely. (laughs) I'm off to Barbados. Make sure it's working by the time I come back. So I spent a week of sleepless nights programming this thing. And and really not having a musical clue. Uh, I have to say Rick Waitman was fantastic because he uh, came in and told me the structure of each of the songs and which notes formed which part of the chords and I made all sorts of written notes. I spent a week programming it. Unbeknown to the rest of the band, who uh, it was the union tour where there were eight members of Yes uh, playing in the round. Unbeknown to the rest of the band, John had dis- as I mentioned, John had disappeared to Barbados. And when he came back, they were apoplectic. There were egos were running high. And uh, Chris Squire, as soon as John stepped in the into production rehearsals, Chris Chris Squire kind of lost his rag and it was a one of those PBS moments which a PBS for those who don't know is professional body swerve when egos are clashing disappear <laughs> anyway I was in the in the dressing room and John came back to me and said um, he just had a filthy row with Chris Grant he, he came back and he said how have you been getting on with this box <laughs> my eyes were down on the on my cheeks I've been there sort of 12 hours a day looking at this mental thing and uh John took one look at me. I think I'd programmed four songs. And he said, is that all you've done? I got up and I marched straight out of the room. And I went to the tour manager who was a chap from ex-Led Zeppelin and uh, uh, Peter Grant's antics are are legendary. So I'm sure you've all heard those stories. And I went to the, the guy, Rex King, and I said, that's it. I'm leaving the tour. I cannot stand this man for one moment longer. But what, before I go, I'm going to go back into the dressing room and I'm going to punch his lights out. <laughs> <laughs> and Rex, to his immense credit, said to me, 
Look, lad, whatever you do, don't punch him in the throat. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, I survived and we used, we ended up using an octopad to uh, trigger a few tambourine samples. (laughs) So, so, so when, I mean, you know, this thing is supposed to be so amazing and, and, and obviously, you know, it, it does kind of just wow people uh, and now there's the, there's a, a software element which you can still buy which is available on windows for a couple of hundred bucks um i mean is it why why aren't we seeing more of it i suppose is what i'm because it, it does seem kind of very like a real wow moment for a lot of people yeah it the wow mo- the wow factor came because uh of the fact that it was already set up for demos so when someone like john came along he first saw it at nam i think in eight, 1988 or 89 when he came along, he walked up to this could keep what appeared to him to be a controller. And Jimmy said, hey, have a go. And everything he touched was in the right key, in the right place. It all worked. It just sounded amazing, well, va- right? vaguely musical. So, if uh, you know, there was a fit. But it's one of those gadgets that's um, in- entirely technical rather than musical. It's just a brilliant piece of design in terms of its technical abilities. But right. from, from a user perspective, it's, I mean, most people who have a, have a job to find the tune knob on their synth or the filter calf yeah, knob, it's not going to, it's not so going to, it's fit. just not going to work for, for the vast majority of people. Does anyone know how Atari got involved with this? Presumably back in the late eighties, um, Atari were, you know, still a, a fairly reasonable force. They were looking for a tax break on their profits. I think. <laughs> Allegedly, <laughs> is he still alive? Does anybody know what's happened to him now? Yeah, I think he's still going. It was seen at Nam last year. I was looking on the website, and um, he he he's basically um, he's an expert in three D computer graphics, and he's chief visionary behind the something called Three D Max Media Zuma project, which is a team that developed technology to manipulate three D imagery in real time with audio. And that was, I think, two thousand and three, and it was used on some kind of world tour, you know. And so, you know, he's still he's obviously still you know, a major boffin in terms of kind of computer stuff. But it just seems amazing that all these people have, you know, the very high profile stuff. And I, I, I'm just surprised I, I'd never actually heard of it, but it must, I mean, he's got some for sale um, on his website. You can buy the, the big one, which is pictured in all the videos. I'll put the links in the show notes. It's seven grand. Uh, <laughs> not, not quite what Atari had in mind, is it? No, perhaps not. The two, the two, the two row one is a mere two and a half k, and a one row one um, is one and a half k. And copies of his first album on vinyl are for sale for a hundred dollars there as well. So I'm thinking he's not doing very well financially. That's my guess. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe. But I mean, the guy's obviously a bit of a major innovator. So um, I mean, kudos to him, and he managed to get all these people kind of on board and excited about it. So he's obviously very good at the networking stuff as well, which is a big part of how you get these things going. But this reminds me of that whole period when it was the time of CD-ROM and there was a lot of people who were big bullshitters who made an absolute fortune at the time doing rubbish like this. Paul Allen used to spend a fortune on people doing things like this. And I I think... I think all of these people have come to nothing now, having made enough money to buy a a castle in Germany. So that's my guess. Roll on. Well, I'll have some of that. Chris, that's fantastic. Thank you ever so much for that story. I'm not. I, I'm not entirely sure how much of it I will. Um, I, I should legally use. No edit. <laughs> I know. I know. Eric is a big fan of your John Anderson stories because I mean, Chris, you toured with uh, Yes, and also did you talk uh, Keith yeah. Emerson and you know lots of kind of big the the big synthesizer right? So you must have lugged your fair share of heavy analog equipment around. So is that why you got into software instrument to business? 
I've pushed a fair a, a fair few heavy instruments off the back of trucks just so they didn't work anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Sonic Talk, sponsored by Yamaha Music Production, produces of the world's most popular digital mixing consoles, accurate professional studio monitoring systems, incredibly realistic and portable digital stage pianos, the versatile motif range of music production synthesizers, and the latest N-series digital mixing studios, featuring the signal pump and full Cubase AI4 integration www.yamahasynth.com Sonic Tour Thanks once again to Yamaha UK for supporting this podcast Well I suppose pushing the pushing stuff off the back of trucks um, kind of takes us into the gear you broke kind of topic which uh, I just happened to notice I was looking at one of the RSS feeds for Vintage Synth and it was uh, it was basically come on tell, tell me what you broke there are a couple of great ones. There's a guy called uh, J-Bug, who, uh, who in his early gigging days, he said he made an overenthusiastic slide on his Poly 800, which they were quite lightweight, weren't they? And he said he went flying to the front of the stage just at the point the lead singers landed from a particularly energetic jump. Um, and he landed straight on top of it and just crushed it into a million pieces. <laughs> and I thought, well, it seemed, it seemed that the most popular ones would be drinks spilt in them or smashed up in frustration because they can't get them to work. Those were the two recurring things. I have a friend who had the ceiling, a pipe break above him, and the ceiling open up into his OBX once. Um, oh. and, he, and he was able to solve it by opening the thing up completely and running a fan on it for three days. Fortunately for him, the only thing that had spilled into it was water, and it actually did boot up at the end of that process wow, so that rough. i can tell you that story and looking at this uh vintage synth website uh there's a photo of the panel a partial panel from a rhodes chroma polaris synth i believe did, yeah. they, did anybody else notice that i did yeah the one there was a story from one guy who said yeah i opened mine up just to clean it and the first time I opened it, a third of the buttons stopped working. And when the next time I opened it up to try and fix it, half of them stopped working. And after that, I decided I wasn't going to open it anymore because I didn't want to break it completely. So they were very temperamental, those mem- membrane um, buttons. What about, um, what about you, Dave? I mean, you've done your fair share of gigs as well. I mean, there must be, you must have had a, maybe a drum kit moment. No, I've had a scenario, and this is most unlike me. I was working on a very long project um, that had kind of driven me nuts and one day i just walked into the studio and lost it completely and trashed everything <laughs> except i got to the mac and that was the sort of moment of clarity calm down but i think i destroyed an emacs uh, and a couple of rolling keyboards during that most of my things are usually um plugging 110 voltages into 240 they're usually quite entertaining <laughs> Uh, Dave, I think I could probably help your memory a little. <laughs> I don't know if many of you know, or any of you know that Dave used to be a, a drummer in uh, a live band. And Dave has a wicked story about playing in front of his father in London. Yeah. Remember that, Dave? Yeah. You've got you to tell that story. <laughs> Uh, I thought I'd made it, you know, playing a couple of nights at Dominion Theatre, and uh, I got my parents to kind of box, you know. My dad was always kind of going, well, there's your 15 minutes of fame. And uh, it, was the, it was the last gig of the tour, and I hadn't kind of, it hadn't dawned on me that, you know, you finished the tour and everyone went on the dole. I thought, well, it's only natural that, you know, Stevie Wonder or somebody, Jeff Beck's going to ring up and go, hey, are you that great drummer? And of course, when I spoke to everybody and said, you know, what's going on? They were like, well, we sign on, don't we? I was like, no, surely not. So I got excessively drunk and I uh, took to the stage and um, 
did the counting for the first number and fell right through the middle of the kit. <laughs> in front of your parents. And, and came to on the riser looking straight at my dad. Who <laughs> 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 just kind of, you know, rolled his eyes. and That's well, my boy. Was, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I think, I, I think if we're on the subject of uh, gear being wrecked, uh, Chrissy has to do the uh, MO organ story. Oh, the Hammond story. Okay, I was just thinking about that. Um, Emerson used to throw an L100 Hammond organ around and stab it, and I'm sure you've all seen it. Um, and on the tour that we were doing, he said to me, I'm not, get, I'm not getting any younger, and that L100 certainly seems to be getting heavier. Is there anything you can do to make it more movable around the stage? So I said, yeah, leave it with me. I'll see what I could do. So I made a base plate for it and recessed casters into the base plate so it could be actually shoved around the stage with relative ease and then he could tip it up and put it on his knee and do what he did. And uh, we were in Cleveland, Ohio, and for those of you who have seen the Spinal Tap movie, you'll all know what the, the Cleveland references are. And in the moment when he decided to stab the L100... It actually got away from him on the off the casters, went off the front of the apron of the stage, straight into the front row of the audience. Oh, my God. <laughs> Ouch. And just just was left there feeding back. It was magic. I, I, was, I hope nobody was hurt. No, nobody was hurt. Oh, well, it was good. very funny, and we didn't use it again after that, <laughs> as you can imagine. They got a, a Native <laughs> Instruments B4. <laughs> Non Eric, I'm sure your your days of techno and you you must have had some uh, a moment. Oh yeah, well I had one moment where we were doing a, a show, uh, and it was all this sort of new wave German hardcore uh, stuff we did, and we were really wild on stage, and we we borrowed um, an MS10 and a Simmons drum kit from the uh, German distributor of the Simmons drums at the time, uh, early 80s. And uh, it was some, and we were doing this really rough gig. <laughs> and we, I returned the, uh, we returned the Simmons drums broken, which was bad, and the MS-10 with about only 50% of the keys still on the instruments. But the worst was there was all this dried egg yolk <laughs> on the MS-10 because we've been thrown at by uh, the crowd. Passed. Yeah, oh. lots of eggs it. and shit was thrown at us. It was, it was great. a great gig, that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they loved us. We, we, we made it into the newspapers, obviously. Ah, uh, wow. That was a good one. Rich? Well, I've never, yeah. I've never broken an um, instrument before. The, the only thing I can think that I broke of any great worth was once at the end of a Mighty Lemon Drops album we were making in 1987 with Mark Wallace producing... And it was 7 o'clock in the morning on the last day of the mix, and everybody was really miserable because they still had a load of work to do. And I thought I'd cheer everybody up by putting a, uh, a vase of flowers on the NS10 sitting on the edge of the uh, mixing desk, which obviously went into put about a gallon of water down the, the six, channel 16 to 32, and the rest of the session was spent, I think, eight hours trying to fix the bloody thing. Before you could finish the mix. <laughs> oh, Mr. Popular. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Ouch. <laughs> Well, I think there's a lot of spilling. PJ, how about yourself? You must have had the occasional um, moment. Several. Would you like the liquid or the exploding or the exploding. dropping? Exploding. <laughs> I, I like the sound of exploding. <laughs> <laughs> 
I was uh, I was in a session right around 1999 with a band called Uju, and I was doing some programming on an MC505, and the power supply exploded, and sparks shot uh, about 50 feet out of the back of the thing, uh, started a piece of paper on fire, and uh, scared everybody within the vicinity you know everybody jumped and uh that's actually not that exciting of a story it probably looked it probably looked great probably was when you were there it did it looked it did it did look pretty cool um i hope you jumped up and shouted rock yeah (laughs) (laughs) most most definitely and uh let's see i was at a gig once using a corgo 1w pro x as a controller um playing in the corner of a room just doing you know solo barrel house bar stuff and there was a guy hit there who was a notorious zombie once he got drunk and the back of a corgo nw pro x for those who don't know is like a big table it's like a bar rail which is a bad design implementation if you're ever going to play in the corner of a room full of drunks and i asked uh some friends of mine to keep him away from the keyboard because I knew he'd come up and start setting drinks on the back on the back of the keyboard. And sure enough, at one point, I look up and he's right in front of me, sets his beer down on the back of the keyboard and proceeds to immediately knock it over and right in through the display and <clears throat> beer everywhere. Oh. Things shuts down. And uh, a friend of mine and I, or maybe two, because that that's a beast. The thing's like 160 pounds. We pick it up pour beer right out right out the back you know right out the jacks in the back they should put they should put valves in like they do in brass instruments shouldn't they for sort of emptying out kind of stuff that gets oh, inside a, sp- a spit valve yeah the like beer a sp- valve a beer valve <laughs> <laughs> did the guy have yes, green sir. teeth the- <laughs> I, I believe it green teeth and a 10 gallon hat i know him okay <laughs> I, I have to tell you my favorite though i mean at the time at the time it really wasn't when I was a teenager, I was living in a in a home with about eight other guys. You know how it goes. You can't afford the rent. And some of them were extremely dodgy. And uh, <clears throat> I came home one day and I had my um, my synthesizers in the basement. I had a, a, a number of them at the time. And I, I come home and I fire up my or I, I go to fire up my ESQ one and it doesn't turn on. And I'm like, what's going on? What's going on? And uh, one of my roommates says, ask Dave. And I said, what am I supposed to ask Dave? And he goes, ask Dave what he was doing this afternoon with one of your keyboards. I go up to, uh, to Dave and I said, Dave, what, you know, what the hell were you doing with my ESQ one this afternoon? He says, I opened it up. I wanted to see what was inside. That's, that's, that's exactly what he said to me. He said, I wanted to see what was inside. I opened it up and things had been uh, messed with quite severely on the inside. <laughs> and when I took it down to the local, around. <laughs> yeah, when I took it down to the local repair shop, they said it was worth about twenty three bucks. Oh man, so, uh, yeah. that's rough. That's you know, rough. Nick, I, I have thought of a story. By the way, okay. a, a road story. Um, it was uh, December of ninety nine, and Sheik was playing uh, one of our traveling disco flea circus tours through uh, the UK, and we've arrived at the last night of the tour at the Docklands Arena in London. And at the time, I'm using a Kurzweil K2500 keyboard as my main sound-generating controller. And we arrive at the, at the venue, and I come to discover that right in the center of the keyboard, I believe it's uh, just under the A below middle C, I cannot drop any of those three or four keys down 
deep enough. I, I can't get them to move more than maybe an eighth of an inch, a couple of centimeters. And so the process begins of figuring out why. And if anybody's opened up a Kurzweil K2500, you know that there are somewhere around 65 screws of varying size that get you inside the thing. <laughs> and uh, all of which, of course, have to be kept you know, neatly on the keyboard riser. Meanwhile, I'm surrounded by oh, about half a dozen very willing and enthusiastic British stagehands, each of whom has a different power tool in his hands, ready, you know, ready and willing to help, you know, chainsaws and all kinds of stuff. And, uh, and I'm like, no, 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 everybody back, everybody back. So uh, eventually we come to discover, and this is the anticlimax of the story, that one of the weights that is mysteriously glued to the bottom of the keys and not secured in any other way has dropped out from underneath the actual key and landed in the key bed in such a way as to prevent those keys from being activated in any way. And so we had to tear the thing open and we're looking through it, trying to figure out how to get this thing out from under the key bed. And our sax player, Bill Holloman, who uh, is firmly of the belief that anything in life can be fixed with a coat hanger and duct tape, shows up with not surprisingly, a coat hanger and some duct tape, and manages to straighten the coat hanger out and poke this thing, I mean, from one end, poke this thing all the way out of the keyboard so that I was then able to play the show, albeit with one unweighted key. I wish very much that I had had Chris there (laughs) (laughs) to help me roll the thing off the front of the stage, but uh, (laughs) unfortunately... I saw a mark tree get broken once. A what? A mark tree, you know, a percussionist mark tree, the bell tree? Oh, yeah. Somebody stuck sellotape or clear duct tape all across the back of it. So when the percussion <laughs> player came to hit it, just went, dunk! <laughs> <laughs> was, that the last gig? was that the last night of the tour, by any chance? The Pen- penultimate show, I mean. Ah. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yes, so I think we've all had our fair share of destructions. I, I can't think of any that's happened to me, which is, I must be just very safe, or it's about to happen. Maybe it'll happen live. Live <laughs> on the podcast, something amusing will occur. Sonic State. So the next topic, um, after that uh, rather libelous, potentially libelous uh, section of the show, I'm, I'm sure I'll have fun on the edit with that, but I'm, I'm, I'll try and protect the innocent. Or even the guilty. I, Rich Hilton brought this up. Uh, there's a virtual instruments mag. I mean, no, you know, in the time when kind of magazines are getting kind of uh, caned and, you know, pe- they're closing down all over the place. Virtual instruments magazine, which is, uh, is very, very niche, isn't it? I mean, it's just dedicated purely to, well, believe it or not, virtual instruments and plugins. And it's run by a guy, weirdly, called Nick Batsdorf. Now, this is kind of because I'm Nick Bat. Um, I remember posting something on the Logic list, and he replied to my post, and we had this sort of really strange, almost doppelganger moment via email. But that's about all I know. I know, Rich, um, are you a subscriber? Oh, yeah, I'm a subscriber. I very much enjoy this magazine. In fact, it's, uh, it's my, my recent fave. I mean, having been through, what is it, 35 years of keyboard magazines and God knows how many years of electronic musicians and mixes and pro sound newses and Lord knows everything else, uh, it all, I kind of get through those very, very quickly these days. I can kind of just turn the page, turn the page, turn the page, read the ads, skim the, the, the stuff and be done with it. But this is a magazine that actually captures my attention for a length of time and gives me good information on uh, things like sample libraries and, and uh, new virtual instruments that I might actually be able to use in my work. And so I quite enjoy it, actually. And uh, Batsdorf, I will admit, is a friend of mine. So uh, it's kind of, uh, It strikes me as you, know, you get those kind of magazines in America which are like um, 
Dobbs, you know, they're, they're kind of really specialized like Linux magazines and what have you that, are, that, that, that focus on a very sort of niche thing. And it has that kind of flavor to it because it goes so, so in depth. I am not a subscriber, but I bought several issues off the newsstand. And uh, I, I enjoy that magazine. I enjoy it very much. I agree with Rich. It it's, uh, seems to go f- further uh, and deeper than most of the American publications, and, the, and even several of the British publications do. Um, one, one thing, Rich, is uh, maybe ask Nick, or maybe you know the answer to this question, um, why they've decided to go the route where they where they'll split an article. You know, they'll they'll start an article and they'll say this is continued on page fifty four. That that type of that that sort of layout is is uh, somewhat uh, obtrusive. I see. Yeah, well, it's actually that part of it is handled by a guy named Lachlan Westfall, who used to work with Roland on their Roland Users Group magazines. And um, I obviously am not wise to the ways of publishing or. The reasons sure. why one might find that more desirable. I know it's a bit of a pain to me too at times, but uh, most publications seem to do that with with their well, article. I know the that, you states. Know. I mean, yeah, no, keyboard magazine right? does it as well, doesn't it? And and a mm. lot of the papers. Are there any other magazines that anybody else kind of swears by, and you know can't wait till it comes out, or is that? Do you think that that's no longer applicable in this worldwide web internet thingy? I like the future music because they always have these nice DVDs where they sort of film a producer for two hours fiddling around with their track. I quite like that. But that's not a classic print thing because I'm more or less more interested in watching the DVD than reading the mag. Right. PJ, what about you? What's your tome of choice? I like sound on sound quite a bit. I still I still find that a lot of their retrospectives and and even some of their you know some of the advice they give on tweaking computers and whatnot as uh, for me applicable. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, it's still a quality mag, isn't it? There's there's no getting away from it. And their and their review section is is fantastic. I mean, I think they go they go deeper than than pretty much anybody in the industry. Yeah, sure, no, that's true. Dave, what about you? Razzle. <laughs> Is that something to do with um, specialised uh, <laughs> specialised circuitry? Yeah, forty plus. Um, no, um, I had no idea this magazine even existed. And yeah, it's funny because there's there's a few um, contributors, Peter Buick and Oren Merton's mate, and there's a, there's quite a few people here. Blast from the past, Mark Jenkins, uh, and I had absolutely no idea. So I'm quite intrigued. Um, but it appears that it kind of stopped in about. Like two two thousand and seven. No, was, it comes out at, once every once every two months, uh, Dave. Uh, okay, I was just looking at the back yeah. issues. The last one I can see is June, July two thousand and seven. I mean, it takes balls, man. It takes balls to release a you know a hard copy magazine in the current climate. Well, Rich, do you do you have anything that you kind of uh, the chap possibly or? I really enjoy the chap. Fantastic magazine, but but absolutely nothing to do with virtual instruments. Sadly, good for pipe smoking and uh, your pipe smoking needs and your tweed needs. But uh, Sound on Sound is the only one that I, I buy regularly, and I mean by regularly once every two years. I think I've got one copy from the past past eight years. So that means I've got four copies, and so far, so far as I can tell, they're almost identical apart from the prices of the things inside it. I just can't tell the difference. 
really between it doesn't it doesn't feel to me that there's been anything excitingly new that I really want to read about there for quite for quite a long time really since the advent of the of the hard disk recorder and I got excited about that well, that's, I suppose that's a fair point. I mean, that does come down to the, you know, we're we're dealing with iterations of stuff, but there are, you know, occasional innovations. Let's not... <laughs> <laughs> no, by rendering Let's, Sonic yeah. State Hold on. <laughs> What about you, Chris? Do you... Where do you go for your... Um, uh, I just asked Dave. He gives well, we me get, a razzle it's... when he's finished with it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we get sent all the mags um, anyway, so they just sort of pile up. But I've got mags going back to like 1978. Yeah, I've got uh, all the original issues of mags like one, two testing from issue one. I've got tons of international musicians from back in the day. Uh, and it's brilliant for resource material. And it's also a very good laugh to occasionally, you know, delve back through them and go, Jesus, remember this. You're kind of married with uh, a child. I'm surprised they kind of made it through that, you know, the, the kind of there's no room in this house kind of scenario. You know how it is. Yeah. And uh, you've you obviously got your storage sorted out really well. Are they actually still in the house or do you have a separate sort of area that they have to they have to live in? No, they're in an alcove, um, and they are absolutely chock-a-block in the alcove. In fact, if anyone wants some, all of the copies of uh, The Mix, do you remember that British magazine? Yeah. Um, They can have those, because I'm looking to clear out some space. He's probably got all his old computers as well. Uh, I have, actually, yeah. (laughs) Just in case. But now we have internet, Nick. I think that's really changed uh, everything about, you know, I remember in the old days, I would be really, really exciting to pick up a German keyboards magazine every month. But these days, it's, I think, uh, getting more and more boring because even if we need to uh, look at some old stuff, we just go to Google, don't we? Yeah, that's true. I mean, I, you know, I, I'm not trying to kind of big up the whole kind of internet thing and my website you know, being a replacement. Because I think magazines definitely, there's a tangible quality. Anything that you hold in your hand, you can kind of just browse. It's, and, but yeah, it's, and, and read it in the, on the yeah, exactly. toilet. You yeah. could, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> also, when you hold a magazine up, it's like, I'm busy looking at something, you know, do not disturb almost. You, know, you kind of create a, a space of, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in this. You know, I think you don't get that from the internet because it's always, you can always come back to it because it's never not there. I think that Richard Evans had a very good point though, that, things have changed relatively so little over the last few years that anything that you're going to read, well, not anything, but most of the things in the appear in magazines are a little secondhand, the news now, anything that's an innovation is going to hit the internet at least a month before it comes into a magazine. Well, that's true, so, but you're only going to know the bullet points and the features. You're not going to go the kind of get much in depth in use kind of stuff. You know, you don't get that until it, until the review copies are out and all of that thing. So you know, with very few exceptions, um, one being the the headliner in this in this topic, the Virtual Instance, Instruments magazine. It seems like uh, word counts are being reduced so much in these magazines that you get very little useful information out of the out of the reviews. You know, and and they'll give some product a nine out of ten or a ten out of ten, and and basically in the conclusion of the review, the reviewer will say something like, "Just take my word for it, this thing is fantastic." But you've got no feel for what the product can do. You've you've got no in-depth information. You probably you probably would get more information by reading the bullet points on the manufacturer's website, and I, I find that unfortunate. It seems to be some idea that some people have a notion that oh, people can't concentrate on any more than you know. 
what you could fit on one com- one one iteration of a computer screen, which I don't think is actually true. You know, sometimes you need a bit more. I mean, I think perhaps you could say, well, video is replacing the word because you can get so much more across about the feel and the sound and the, how you're interacting with something. I mean, obviously, I'm kind of passionate about that because I'm a, you know, that's what we do here. But I think that's probably more of an issue than than perhaps the the word counts. Maybe they don't pay enough for the guys who write the articles. Well, that, maybe not. Maybe they don't have the budget, yeah. But I'm more interested in knowing what other musicians and what other engineers and programmers use rather than what a reviewer in a magazine thinks, to be honest. So I think that's where Sonic State works because you get to see it have uh, recommendations from people whose opinions you really respect. Well, hopefully. Also, it's levels. It's levels of experience. I mean, we're all pretty savvy. But, I mean, I know, you know, for example, computer music, the emphasis is more on tutorials right so yeah. i mean in terms you know for beginners yeah. that's perfect you know you've got this kind of step by step you have it you're running in parallel with your computer and you go okay yes yeah, green grab one. Oh yeah turn the knob and stuff well, that, like that's really handy that's really interesting because we talked to uh, brian lancer from muse research they make the uh uh receptor you know the plugins player and he's got a really kind of He's very, very passionate about the fact that, you know, the technology that we use to make music is so complicated, and yet there aren't any kind of very simple, this is what MIDI does, this is, you know, this is sort of missing in in a lot of of the kind of literature in the magazines, and it's sort of, there is, that we need a kind of, a roadmap, if you like, of kind of really basic stuff, so people, when they first get it there, you know, they're left to kind of fend for themselves to a degree, and you just have to learn it, and we all sort of, remember fondly of those uh, hours and days spent you know going why doesn't this work and then you gradually get your head around it and you know you learn through experience but there's no not everybody has that luxury you know and we certainly don't anymore we get, i mean now you get something and it's not immediately obvious how to work you know if you're working on a session it's like out the window well i haven't got time for this you know it's got a i've got it has to be intuitive otherwise it's gone you know so i think perhaps there's room for um, more tutorial based stuff you know, and I think places that's where things like computer music and uh, probably virtual instruments are kind of really, kind of making making their mark. Yeah, specialist yep. stuff. Of course, as we were all learning this stuff, there was there was almost no resource at all. There was no place to go. There were maybe a, there was maybe a book or a magazine article that you'd you'd pour over to learn about what this brand new MIDI thing was. But there was no school to go to. There was no there was really nobody to ask. And whereas today. Okay. The resources are vast, and Google is ubiquitous, and uh, you can find out the answers to most of these questions. Well, I think a lot more easily. So today they don't know how easy they got it, do they? It's true. But the difference is, I think that the uh, in in the same proportion as the resources become more available, the complexity of the tools have increased at the same rate. Yeah. Yep. Good point. No, I was thinking the amount of misinformation out there. I mean, as opposed to the information age, it's almost the misinformation age. Sometimes, you know, you spend half a day trying to work out actually whether somebody, what somebody's telling you on the net is true or false. And this, I mean, a classic example, I used to spend a load of money every month. I mean, Chris will remember this. I'd probably buy about 10 music publications each month from Q right the way through to, I don't know, you know, all sorts of different mags. But I mean, now it's like almost nothing. Is that because you don't have time or because um, you just get what you need elsewhere? Honestly, probably because I'm bored by it. No, yeah. you can't <laughs> say that. <gasps> oh, my Lord. No, but I think, it, you know, it's so freely available now. It's like, well, I could spend, you know, I mean, Mag's what, five quid? Yeah. A decent a Mag, five quid. So, I mean, I'd probably buy a, sort of five or six of those a month. I mean, that's a reasonable sum of money. Whereas now is. it's like, I'll just log on. 
do a little search. Yep, okay. On to the next. Yep, okay, that works. You can, but you can find out most of the things you want to know by going on the manufacturer's websites, which are really good these days. Yeah, like, they're getting that together. Like the DigiDesign website and all those tutorials and stuff. So you don't really need to buy magazines even for that because some blokes told you how to do it on the on the manufacturer website. The uh, talented Phil Jackson. So good. Yeah, he's very yeah. good at getting that. And and they really, I mean, you you check the video productions and they've got like cranes and these kind of giant, I mean, the, the production values, are, I mean, they do own Avid. I mean, Avid oh, do own them. So you'd think they'd have access to that kind of stuff. But you just sort of think, I, I remember seeing an introduction to, um, I think it was Elastic Audio or something. And there's Phil sitting on a sofa, you know, with a kind of velvet backdrop and this kind of crane shot with it just moving around him. And I was just thinking, wow, it's such like kind of <laughs> filmic, you know, and it's, it's just, it's just going to tell you a bit about some software. I mean, it's, it's brilliant, but it's, it sets the bar rather high. I mean, don't think, oh, we've got a crane, but we haven't got, <laughs> we haven't got a high enough ceiling, you know. <laughs> I'm not joking. We have Good actually boy. got a crane. I haven't used it yet, but. Well, guys, um, thank you very much. Uh, um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to leave it there. We have a few more topics, but I think we've uh, we've had we've had plenty of time and we've had a lot of fun. So, uh, what I'm going to do is um, say thank you very much for joining us, uh, especially Chris McLeod, your first time. I know you do listen to the pos- podcast occasionally, so uh, you can listen to yourself next time if you can bet. <laughs> All right. <laughs> One last John John Andersonism and. Uh, and Mr. PJ Tracy from Minneapolis, thank you very much for joining us again. Thank you, Nick. It's been a pleasure. And non-Eric from Berlin, from musetalk.de. You're welcome, Nick, and everybody else. What you got this week? Well, there's going to be um, an interview with Dieter Döpfer. Ah. from Dupfer Electronics that I did at NAMM show and the next podcast after that will be called Inside Ableton it's basically me walking through the office ah. at Ableton here in Berlin and just give everybody a, a quick um, impression of what these guys are like you know and who's oh, working that'll be interesting because everybody assumes you know a lot of these people are just have megacorp towers you know with kind of uh, just Ferraris and Porsches in the in the uh, and a helipad so uh We'll get and Mr. Dave Spears, g4software.com, who's running still much. still running the competition. Don't forget the Nam that booth. Oh yeah, still oh, ends tomorrow. Oh, ends Blimey. tomorrow. To- well, oh, today. Well. Oh well, in that case, don't bother because it won't. be. <laughs> <laughs> Late entries will not be accepted. But we'll, maybe you can, you can tell us who the winner is next time. <laughs> and Mr. Rich Hilton uh, from Connecticut, thank you for joining us also and sharing thank your you. stories. Thank you. Really good fun and nice to meet uh, Richard and Chris. Hello. Bye. <laughs> and uh, Richard Evans, of course. I always forget the person in the studio. Richard Evans, who is um, with me in the studio. Thank you for hanging in there. Very nice. Thank you very much. You got the quiet chair this week, so uh, there wasn't too much squeaking or creaking or anything. So once again, thank you all for joining me. Uh, that's the end of Sonic Talk number 75. So that's it. It's a wrap. Sonic Talk number 75, over and done with. Um, please do send any in any feedback. Uh, we'd love to hear your comments. So you can send them via email to sonictalk at sonicstate.com. You can leave us a Skype answer phone message. That's at sonictalk is our handle. Uh, or just email us mp3s there. We've got a couple of Skype in numbers, so you can ring them on landlines and leave messages there. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, numbers will be in the show notes. That's it for now. Thank you. Sonic State. Let's go.